to Nature Revisited, the podcast. My name is Stefan Van Norden. On this episode, with Vitor De Silva working for Indigenous Rights, we will be speaking with Vitor, who is an Indigenous rights researcher, field investigator, and storyteller, who is now in the Indian Himalayas, working with local communities and cultures, trying to defend and secure their rights. But first, Nature Revisited is proud to be included in a recent playpodcast.net list of the top six nature podcasts to listen to. We are honored to share that list with the other podcasts. Forces for Nature, Your Forest, Outside In, Urban Wildlife, and Going Wild. Thank you, Play Podcast. And now, a word from our sponsor. Hi, my name is Jonathan Siegel, and I'm proud to sponsor this episode of Nature Revisited. Today, you'll hear the fascinating tale of Vitor da Silva, a Portuguese anthropologist who's dedicated his life to defending and advocating for threatened indigenous people all over the world. He's worked with local groups in the Himalayas, the Amazon, and Africa. These people have typically lived symbiotically with the natural world for thousands of years, but are increasingly threatened as development, resource depletion, and climate change encroach upon their traditional cultures. Listen to this installment of Nature Revisited and find out how Vitor da Silva is helping them push back against the forces that are undermining their way of life. I hope you enjoyed today's episode, and remember, for a small contribution, you too can sponsor an installment of Nature Revisited. So, Vitor, let's start with you growing up in Portugal. How important was nature, and was nature a part of your culture? I grew up in a small village in the present-day city of Guimarães, which is known to be the birthplace of Portugal. My village was situated on mountain slopes, which had been home to hunter-gathered tribes who worshipped the landscape a long time ago. It was a pristine environment that served my ancestors for generations, but from the moment Christianity took over many centuries ago, this connection to the natural world was immediately disrupted and the world of my ancestors deanimated by an alien desert religion. Through the centuries, the sacred meaning that my people attached to the native forests began to fade away. And today, a monoculture of non-native eucalyptus trees permeate the landscape, replacing the pristine native forests that served my people, and these only to cater for the new globalized ethos of development and progress that resulted from the Industrial Revolution. 
although there are still remnants of nature worship in some of our rituals, as well as old healing practices that I saw my grandmother and later my mother practicing, other knowledge of medicinal plants, which is almost entirely gone. I was lucky to have spent my childhood in the forests. I was free to roam with my friends, to fall from trees and even to get lost. When I was about 12 years old, my family was forced to move out of the village to give way for the construction of a new motorway, which basically, in essence, stripped the native forest that I called home irreversibly. So we ended up moving closer to town, where the scarce patches of forest between the urban areas that I lived were no longer pristine and healthy playgrounds, but literally garbage dumps, a cemetery of no longer needed junk, which in a way reflected the growing consumerist ethos of our time. This shift in my life was catastrophic. I no longer had a refuge in the natural world and my life was, I can say, shaken to the core at that time. And living in this broken, alienating environment, I also struggled to make meaningful relationships with other kids of my age who spent most of their days at home playing video games overprotected by their parents. The next few years of my life were very difficult. I even stopped turning up to school for a period of about three years. Instead of taking the local bus to school with the other kids, I would walk in the other direction for about 10 miles every morning to the nearest native forest where I would spend my days. Was there any indication growing up that you would someday be working with indigenous communities all over the world? No, not at all. I did not even know what the word indigenous meant, to be honest. Like any other child growing up in the Western world, indigenous translated into the Indians of North America, a people of the past, as if they were erased by some sort of natural law of human progression. However, meaning always governed my life from an early age. If something did not intuitively feel meaningful, my tendency was always to reject it. And that is why I refused to follow the status quo, which translated in practice in me rejecting uh, mainstream education and Christian indoctrination. And eventually my life followed its course, but it wasn't until living with an indigenous community many years later, as part of my anthropology studies, that I regained some sort of a sense of purpose. And in these communities, I really found hope. For the first time, I remember seeing children being encouraged instead of overprotected, elders respected rather than discarded. And 
the importance of their teachings to humanity were obvious to me, as, as it was their suffering also at the hands of a colonial state. From that first experience, my path was clear to embark on this lifelong mission for the peoples of the world, to be a facilitator in them communicating their own stories of hope and struggle. What was it that caused you to leave the Portuguese army? And can you share your story of becoming an anthropologist? I never planned to become an anthropologist. To be honest, growing up, I did not even know what the discipline of anthropology was. My decision to follow this path happened later in life as I tried to make sense of human suffering, secular upbringing, and the meaning of being alive. And like any other boy growing up in the so-called developed world, I had little to no structure in my life apart from the mandatory school curriculum that taught me useless facts about distant lands. So besides being made to memorize data for school exams, there was no real experiential learnings that enhanced my day-to-day life. Even the the pseudo-sacred rituals of passage that I was made to undergo as part of my Christian upbringing lacked real meaning. And looking back, it was more meaningful for me to play with my friends in the woods on the way to Sunday school than the preaching of the divine itself. As a teenage boy, I craved challenges. I craved healthy competition and self-reliance in the natural world, which explains why I spent more time in the forest than at school. I had many questions for which I had no answers to, but one thing was clear. Something was fundamentally unfulfilling in my framework of upbringing. So this kind of made me pursue a much more difficult path than the rest of my friends. And at the age of 17, I decided to enlist in the Portuguese Special Forces. This decision to join the military had a completely different fundament. It was not based on a patriotic dream to defend my country, but an unconscious willingness to undergo deep transformation through a challenging but significant rite of passage. Ultimately, my time in the army taught me the meaning of courage, discipline, and brotherhood It also revealed something very important, which was my empathetic nature to help others. After leaving the armed forces, I moved to the UK to study criminal investigation. My goal was to combine what I had learned in the army with the investigative sciences in preparation for my ambition to reduce suffering in the world. But for me, these aspirations did not aim to simply save the victims and punish the criminals, but rather to understand human behavior and other 
deep societal patterns that would lead a person down that path in first place. So this led me to pick anthropology as a major, a discipline that became the core of what I do today. And ultimately, becoming an anthropologist was a product of my realization that serving humanity without first understanding human societies and the meaning of being human and alive was not only ironic, but impossible. In the work that you are doing, how is anthropology, human rights, and criminology connected? I could say that in a single project, I oscillate between a criminal investigator, a human rights researcher, and an anthropologist. These three disciplines, although serving very different purposes, were strategically combined into what I do today. And I'll give you a few examples to explain why and how I intertwine my background while on the field. My first fieldwork led me to Kenya, where I lived with the Maasai indigenous community. This trip to a distant land had a purpose that exceeded the typical anthropological inquiry about a particular society or culture. My research sought to document the challenges of an indigenous community at risk of being displaced from their ancestral lands to give way for the construction of a national park and to also to understand the many threats associated with the construction of this park and also the human conflict that it would generate. Besides providing a framework on how to navigate spaces with appropriate ethics and cultural sensitivity, the discipline of anthropology allowed me to understand their lived realities from the community's own point of view rather than what made sense to me as an outsider. Things like, what is their connection to the land and the wildlife around them? How has that changed over time? How will the physical, cultural, and spiritual survival of the community be affected by the displacement? Who in the community is going to suffer the worst impacts? And last but not least, what does the community need and want? So my ethnographic training allowed me not only to ask the right questions in a manner they could understand and relate to, but also help me interpret their answers beyond verbal communication. On the other hand, my human rights background allowed me to contextualize the issue being researched within a broader legal and political spectrum, as well as to devise strategies to support the affected communities. For example, are the grounds to displace an entire community from their ancestral lands justified? Is the displacement legitimate according to the law? Has the community been meaningfully consulted for this project according to their right to free prior and informed consent? How can the community uphold their rights and fight against this proposed project if they so wish? My criminal investigation training then prepared me to deal with the bureaucratic nature of the assignment, 
for example, how to engage with NGO representatives and government authorities, who and what to believe, what to assume, what to challenge, what to investigate further. Documenting environmental crime and indigenous rights issues today could be said to be as dangerous as war reporting. And for me, as a white man, maintaining a low profile in such a hostile region was not a simple and straightforward task, as you can imagine. That's when my military training also came into play. It helped me familiarize with the country's security risks and also devise a strict safety protocol that was adequate to the nature of my fieldwork. What role do you see anthropology playing in building a better global society? Anthropology has been used in many different ways since its dawn, from guiding European colonizers on how to dominate indigenous communities to help tyrannical states understanding the enemies of war. But it has also changed our collective understanding about the meaning of being human. In an increasingly divided society, anthropology, which besides exploring human diversity, also teaches us about what we all have in common. It presents itself as a tool for hope. In the globalized world, there is an urgent need to build understanding, acceptance, inclusivity, and respect. Respect across cultural and imaginary divides so that you and I, regardless of our country of origin, religion, worldview, gender, social class, can understand that we are nothing but the same, human. What is ethnography and why is it important to your work? Ethnography is a branch of anthropology that explores sociocultural phenomena from the point of view of the community. It is a form of inquiry that relies heavily on what anthropologists call participant observation, where researchers like me immerse themselves in the everyday life of a community. In essence, ethnographers could be seen as the interpreters or translators of a culture. So all my projects begin with an ethnographic research about the lived realities of the community that I aim to serve. So instead of parachuting into these communities with false perceptions about their struggles and therefore as a consequence devise a project based on what I, as an outsider, think they need and want, I first sit down and listen. And so this helps me understand their challenges and complexities in a more meaningful and nuanced manner, which in turn dictates the success or failure. So I'll give you a brief example to illustrate the importance of ethnographic research, also of what happens when such approach is not followed before the implementation of quote-unquote well-meaning projects. So a few years back, an NGO based in Delhi, created a development scheme project that aimed to provide 
financial support to the most marginalized indigenous communities that lived in the state of Jharkhand in India. The NGO employees, despite their good intentions, never visited the communities they aimed to serve. Instead, the scheme was designed by a group of people living 800 miles away from the indigenous villages they wished to uplift. Long story short, the money that was supposed to be given to the most vulnerable of the community was intercepted by village elites who could easily portray themselves as the most needy. In the end, the NGO not only ended up providing financial support to the wrong people, but also contributed to the growing prejudice carried by the village elites against the most marginalized. And this case study shows that without a meaningful ethnographic inquiry in order to unveil the power dynamics on the ground, organizations, no matter how well-meaning they are, risk inflicting more harm than good on those they wish to help. And this is just one example out of thousands that I've seen all over the world. It is with this understanding about the complexity of lived experiences on the ground that I approach my work. So I am able to dive deep into the core of their cultural, spiritual, and socioeconomic landscapes. And that includes intimately understanding the challenges and needs of the present, but also their dreams and aspirations for the future, which then allows me, together with the community, to design a project that will ultimately benefit them. You have worked with a diverse group of people from Kenya, Brazil, India, and Nepal. What drew you to these people and who are indigenous people? The reality is that most people don't even know who indigenous peoples are. So how can someone care if their governments and institutions are responsible for the displacement of entire communities in other parts of the world? People will either tell you that these communities ceased existing a long time ago, or that indigenous peoples are the Indians of North America, the truth is that indigenous peoples are not something of the past. And today they are present across 90 countries. They speak over 4,000 languages and protect 80% of the world's total biodiversity. The physical and cultural environments that I work in are indeed very diverse, but the issues that I focus on are essentially the same. From the savannas of Kenya to the rainforests of Brazil, indigenous peoples are being persecuted by a new colonial enterprise that seeks to displace entire communities from their ancestral lands in the name of progress. And nothing in particular drew me to any of these areas. Rather, it was timings and circumstances that led me to work in these regions. For example, the year I was doing my human rights postgraduate at the London School of Economics and Political Science was the same year the former president of Brazil, Jair Bolsonaro, took leadership of the country, which threatened the constitutional rights conquered by its indigenous peoples. So in this time of crisis, it made sense for me to use 
my language advantage as a Portuguese person and focus my time, energy and resources in supporting their struggle. Can you describe the work you have done with these communities in different parts of the world? I have worked with indigenous communities in many capacities. There's no predefined panacea that will solve all their problems in the same way that there isn't a single methodology that will eventually solve all their crises. So each community has their own peculiarities and challenges. Some of the work that I have done included leading undercover field investigations to scrutinize and expose human rights abuses. I have worked to facilitate knowledge transfer and cooperation between neighboring communities in the Amazon. I have spent a considerable amount of time documenting the impacts of development projects such as coal mining on indigenous lands. I have assisted Amazonian communities in tracking land invasions and illegal logging. In Kenya, I worked closely with communities to devise solutions to tackle human-wildlife conflict and the issue of displacement for national parks. And more recently, I began working with my neighboring rural communities here in the Himalayas to devise a project that aims at protecting and safeguarding their sacred cultural heritage, which is today being looted by outsiders. So as you can see, I don't show up to these communities with a predefined solution or methodology. I don't have an agenda, nor I am held by the strings of an organization. So my projects are always framed by the community's own priorities, needs, and ambitions for the future, not what I, as an outsider, think they need. And to be honest, I don't really like the idea that, oh, Vitor is helping indigenous peoples, Vitor is supporting indigenous peoples, because it kind of takes you away from the, the problem. There's no space here for the researcher being a hero. The point is that the heroes are the communities themselves who day in, day out, fight for the survival and the survival of their future generations. And so what I can do, what I can contribute with, if I can say, is the skills that I've gathered along the way. How do you see the line between helping and interfering when it comes to indigenous cultures? And is that line moving? Our growing awareness about the colonial past and the devastating impacts that our ancestors have caused in distant lands has resulted clearly in behavioral shifts in the way we think and relate to our culture, the peoples that have suffered centuries of colonization. Of course, I have received criticism working with indigenous peoples. And what is interesting to me is that all of them come from white people who have feelings of guilt. And so they withdraw themselves from the issue. However, I do not think that feeling guilty about the past and withdrawing from speaking about or acting on these issues is going to address any historical injustice. 
In fact, it does not help anybody. If nothing else, these feelings only prevents one from using their privilege and opportunities to redress these injustices by working in partnership with these communities. And my work is proof that indigenous peoples are not against it and that working together in a spirit of shared learning is possible by an ethical framework of reciprocity designed by the affected community themselves. And that is an approach that has their dreams, hopes and needs at the core. And again, not what I or we as outsiders think they need and want. And no culture is perfect, but that should not prevent us from acting. Are you connected with any organizations? Due to the complex and sensitive nature of my work, I choose to implement and execute my own projects. I have worked as a consultant for different organizations in the past, but I am not affiliated with any of them. I've chose this freedom to work independently because it allows me to connect with communities at a completely different level without the baggage of an organization's agenda. And in this way, I am free to spend months, even years, living with a community to, in order to understand their lived realities from their own point of view, in order to meaningfully serve them, rather than setting up a project based on what a manager from a foreign organization sitting on the other side of the world think they need and want. So the only downside of this is, of course, funding. You know, most of my projects have been self-funded and I answer to no one but the communities themselves. And that is the path that I've chosen. And although I come from an economically underprivileged family, I have never allowed money to be a factor in my major life decisions. But I'm very thankful for this because I saw all of this as an advantage because it cultivated within me a work ethics that is just beyond comprehension. While my family was asleep, I was working. While my friends were out late partying, I was working. From an early age, I knew that I will not be able to buy opportunities, that money was not going to be the factor in me graduating from one of the best university institutions in the world, but that I would have to own everything, every step of the way. I knew that if I focus on being the best, if I focus on making the most of my time and resources, opportunities, doors will inevitably appear and open to me. And, you know, here I am today, living in a Himalayan village, rich with life and meaningful experiences. We know that the climate crisis is having a particularly negative effect on indigenous people all around the globe, and that their existence is being threatened. Is the climate crisis really pushing a lot of these cultures to the edge? and that their time is running out. Climate change is definitely one of the greatest threats of our time, not just for indigenous peoples of the world, but to all of us. 
yes, indeed you are right, climate change does impact indigenous communities disproportionately. There's no question about it. Mostly because they are intimately dependent on stable weather patterns, the health of the natural environment around them, and so on. Within our generation, we will see climate change devouring the remaining ancestral lands of vulnerable indigenous communities, such as, say, the Marshallese people who have lived and thrived in the small island developing state of the Marshall Islands, whose lands will be entirely submerged within the, the next 15 years. We are also witnessing groups who have lived in voluntary isolation from the so-called modern world due to environmental and food security pressures are moving closer to settled communities which are putting themselves and the other communities at risk. Only those who understand the sacred attachment that indigenous communities have with their ancestral lands can begin to make sense of the irreversible damage that climate change is and will continue to cause to their identity and cultural survival. But I would argue that for indigenous peoples, more important than the fact that the climate is changing are the many direct threats to their survival which are unfolding as we speak from illegal logging and unsustainable deforestation that threats indigenous food security to mining projects that displace entire communities overnight. Unfortunately, it is still in the interest of many governments that indigenous peoples remain in the dark and, if possible, that they develop contempt for their own indigenous identity. And ultimately, more than the change in climate, I believe, is the climate of change that we face as a species where the spell of progress and development is leading us down to our own destruction. Is there a growing awareness among indigenous people that they need to fight or push back for their rights? And is there a need for more people such as yourself to advocate for their rights. Resistance is not new for indigenous peoples. They have been resisting for sovereignty centuries before we even began speaking about climate change. The indigenous peoples of Brazil, for example, have been fighting for survival for more than 500 years. And the colonial state has always been invested in the assimilation and acculturation of its indigenous population into the dominant society, just so they can continue exploiting the natural resources of their ancestral lands. With regards to your second question, I don't think the question should be whether there is a need for more people like me, but rather why do people like me even have to be involved in this? Why is it me that is here in this podcast talking with you about this and not them? Why are spaces not yet available for the affected communities? It is a long process, you see, and it is changing. That is my goal, to create such spaces at the national, local even, and international levels so that communities can speak directly about the problems affecting them. You have said that no culture should be represented over another. 
is there a tendency towards romanticizing certain cultures over others? Absolutely. The Western perception of indigenous cultures has changed over time, at least to, to some degree, from the old colonial idea of the primitive savage to this new idea of indigenous peoples as the guardians of the forest, although the former still endures. So the way I see this is that in one side of the political spectrum, you have a conservative ideology that believes that there is nothing to learn from indigenous peoples and that they should just surrender to Western capitalist ways of seeing the world. On the other side of the spectrum, you see a growing belief that indigenous peoples are some kind of supernatural wizards of the cosmos who are going to save all of us. That is also a growing new age culture that, in my view, tokenizes and appropriates and misrepresents sacred elements of indigenous cultures trying to fill the void of meaninglessness and nihilism that we see here in the West. So the truth is that indigenous peoples are people like you and I. And ultimately, I believe that it is as easy to romanticize them as it is to ignore their teachings. And to be honest, none of these concepts are helpful. Your work has explored the importance of the sacred and ritual among indigenous people. How important do you think it is that the developed world starts to incorporate those values into our lives? And what can we learn from these groups? We have been deanimating the world since the Enlightenment period. We have discarded the myths and ritual that held us together. We replaced belief with rationality. We dismissed ritual and mysticism as superstition. We literally burned people at the stake for essentially practicing their own animist rituals, which were often taken by intellectuals of the time as a threat, a dangerous and evil expression that ought to be eradicated. And, and we have ridiculed the sacred and dismissed the importance that rituals have in unifying communities. And we are spiritual beings. Human beings need myth to explain the world and their place in it. It is who we are. But today, what we have is an epidemic of ideologies, right, left, and sideways, it does not matter where it comes from. So my field research in the Brazilian Amazon focused on the importance of rituals as an important mechanism of resistance and community cohesion. Ritual was what allowed indigenous groups of Brazil to strengthen their identity and remain united during difficult times. It served uh, to keep the ember of their spirit alive across time and space. Sacred rituals could be seen as uh, a liminal space, an arena where individuals affirm and reaffirm their fellowship with the community. So during the colonial era, 
the Nokukuin people, which was the community that I lived with, had to consistently resist and adapt to changing conditions. The shamans, which could be taken as some sort of cultural engineers, had a very important role in this because they were the ones who guided their communities during sacred rituals, which they practiced at night, hidden away from the eyes of the colonial authority. And today, ritual is for indigenous peoples of Brazil a form of resistance, and resistance could be seen as their own political science. But the antidote of a shaman, as I was told, does not include persecution, slavery, or punishment, but music, dance, and art. And it is with the same wisdom that indigenous peoples received the colonizers on the beaches of the Atlantic coast. And for me, it is ironic, however, that despite the massacre carried by the invaders, they have received me as a Portuguese man in their homeland in the same way their ancestors received the Portuguese explorers of the 15th century with open arms. I believe that indigenous peoples are giving us a lesson about humanness, political conscience and environmental vision. But the problem is that we need to have the eyes to see and the heart to feel. For that, it is imperative that we cultivate this awareness that we must step down our pedestal, sit down and listen. Indigenous peoples teach us that we are part of nature, not separate or above it. What do you hope people will gain from the work that you are doing? There are many components in the work that I do. That is why I don't, and sometimes can't, engage with my audience as much as I wanted. My biggest challenge has been to address the systemic ignorance about their existence, but also their unique contributions to the problems that confront us today. As an indigenous man from Brazil once told me, and I quote, one cannot care about something which they don't know about. Therefore, besides working alongside these communities, I use storytelling to try and bridge two very different worlds. And ultimately, I hope that my work serves to expand people's horizons of possibility. I want the common person to understand that there are different ways of organizing human societies and that ours is just one out of 6,000 and that because we might have sent a man to the moon does not mean that we are at the apex of human potential. It does not mean we have arrived. And my ultimate goal is to gather people around this virtual campfire and inspire them with the stories of the people I have been honored to live with and hopefully translate the value of those stories to people's everyday lives. I hope you enjoyed this episode with Vitor da Silva and that you visit his website, vitordasilva.org, to learn more about the important work he is doing helping indigenous people. 
I would also like to thank playpodcast.net for their recognition of Nature Revisited. And thank you to Jonathan Siegel for sponsoring this episode. I hope you will share Nature Revisited with family, friends, and colleagues. And follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, or on our website, nordenproductions.com. That's Norden, N-O-O-R-D-E-N, productions.com. The music for this episode is Sultans of Swing by Dire Straits. Nature Revisited is produced by Stefan Van Norden and Charles Gagan. And I hope you will join us for the next edition of Nature Revisited. And in the meantime, do remember, we are nature.